We're going to be back in Mark now, uh, after Easter time, after uh, Steve was preaching last week. Um, so we find ourselves back in Mark here, in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, as you are doing so, though, let me pray for us as we, as we come and we listen to God. God, please, as we approach you in this time, as we are listening to you, unstop our ears. Let us not just hear facts and things about you, but let, me, let us really hear, hear you speaking into us to, to mold us more, uh, to confront our own inadequacies, to confront our, our, own, um, our own areas of disbelief and, and of sin, but also then to apply Jesus and your grace and your mercy and comfort in, those, in those, those areas. And that you would build us in our faith, give us deeper faith, give us a more confident faith. We pray that we would see Jesus as being more beautiful than we did before, as more believable than we did before. And may your spirit be with us in this time here, moving, uh, bring us to life. And would your spirit be upon the man preaching here also to overcome his inadequacies. We all, all of us come before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. This is the word of God. And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Amen. One of the shortest words in the English language, though, but is also a word that we don't like to hear. No. It's a word that's spoken everywhere, in all sorts of places, in all sorts of circumstances. Uh, kids, oftentimes, you don't like to hear the word no from your parents. Uh, it's a word that's received with sadness as it's passed across the tables of couples in college cafeterias everywhere. It's a word, though, that also causes hearts to sink as they're spoken in hospital rooms. And it's amazing how a word with only two letters there could cause such, such difficulty and heartache and confusion. How a word like that, so short, could bring such rejection and fear. But it's not just the word itself. It's not just the word no, but it's who speaks that word. It's disappointing or sometimes infuriating when it comes from parents. It's confusing and depressing when it comes at the end of relationships. And it brings shock and disbelief when it is from doctors. And how much more than when it's God who seems to speak that word to us? Especially when it's, when it's a request that we bring to him over and over, and it's a request that's a good thing. 
And then he meets us with that word. He says no. And it's more than disappointing. It's confusing. I mean, does he care? And then to compound matters, what about who he says he is? How do we reconcile the negative answer that he may give with what he says about himself? Being a God of covenant love and faithfulness to his people. Well, Mark records the story of a woman hearing that word from Jesus. Hearing an answer that is unexpected to hear from him. I mean, to this point here, most of Jesus' mission and ministry has been among the Jewish people in their traditional Jewish lands of Palestine. But now here we read that he goes north. He leaves the Jewish territories and he enters into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which you'd find today in modern-day coastal Lebanon. And he goes trying to find some rest. And Jesus went about his ministry gladly, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't exhausting. So preaching, healing, more the same over and over every day. And everywhere he went, people flocked and thronged about him. And even Jesus, in his human nature, needed rest. So he goes away somewhere where maybe he wasn't as easily recognized. And he hides himself in a house trying to keep a low profile. But it doesn't work. He's found out still even in this foreign territory. In Mark chapter 3, verse 7, it it talks about the people following him. They were from everywhere, including having followers from Tyre and Sidon. And it seems that the news of him had reached up here too now. People recognized him when he came in. And among the first to come to Jesus is this woman, a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician by birth, born and raised in the region. And she comes with a heartbreaking request. So first we see here the woman's, this woman's desperation. Because she's not just a woman, but she's a mom. In fact, perhaps she's even a young mom, because it says that she has a little daughter. A little girl, so dear and precious to her, as little children naturally are to her parents. Now is she coming to, to bring her little daughter to see Jesus? No, because her daughter is at home and this young mom comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet because her little daughter is possessed by a demon. And don't just let that detail slip by. Think about the times that we've read about demon possessions and demonic encounters in Mark. They're literally hell-bent on destruction. We read about the man possessed by a legion of demons in Mark chapter 5, tortured and howling among the tombs at night, naked and bleeding as he cut himself with stones. Another demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 1, yelling at Jesus and convulsing. And now imagine all of that, but plaguing this little girl, this little daughter, a little girl under demonic bondage, shrieking, self-destructive, convulsions, and then the desperation of this mother. The horror at seeing her daughter suffer like this, and then the fear of wondering what was to happen. Or was there anything possible that could be done in all of this? So desperation takes forms, all sorts of forms, and it manifests itself through different circumstances for us all. It shows up when we recognize the depth of our need, or when we come to the very end of what we have. Groaning and crying out in lament happens in the context of feeling our desperation. Like, have you ever been 
fed up with a particular way that you've been living, and then you feel absolutely helpless and under bondage to it. There's nothing you can do to change it. You are absolutely helpless. Those times when we feel like we are under bondage in some way, we are hopeless, we are powerless to do anything about it. That's the sort of desperation here that we have. But here, though, it's her desperation that brings her, though, to Jesus and causes her to fall down at his feet. Can you help me? I have nowhere else to go. So don't miss, though, also that she falls down at his feet. It's humility. It's respect that she shows. She comes to Jesus without any pretense, without any entitlement, but acknowledges what little she knows about him and throws herself at her feet in desperation. Because it's desperate people, it's helpless people who come to Jesus and throw themselves at his feet. Now, what's one of the opposites of desperation? Well, one of them is entitlement. Right? The feeling, I'm owed something. You know, entitled people don't fall down. Entitled people stand and they point or they call for him to come to them because they think that they're owed something better. Entitlement doesn't approach Jesus with humility. But feeling desperation, though, is why we come to him. Because we don't have any other place to go and perhaps he'll help us. And if you don't feel that sort of desperation, if you've never felt that sort of desperation before, then what's the reason why you've come to Jesus if you have? Why did you first come to him at that very first time? See, we don't hide our needs. We don't check our grief at the door. We come to him because we have needs and because we have griefs that are unsolvable and we don't know what to do with them. Desperation leads us to reach out. Desperation brought this woman to fall at the feet of Jesus and to take hold of him. I'm sure she didn't have this deep theological need, or or, sorry, a deep theological knowledge of Jesus. Certainly news and reports of his ministry had made their way outside of Galilee and spread north into this region. And perhaps there were even eyewitnesses to some of Jesus' works that were living there in that very town. But her familiarity with Jesus wouldn't have been expected to be particularly robust. She was a Gentile. Born and raised a Gentile. It's not as if she would have been familiar, or too familiar anyways, with the promises of God's redemption and the scriptures that, had, that give insight into the expectations of their Savior. And she may not have had a deep theological knowledge of him. But since when, though, is that required for coming to Jesus? She may not have known the significance of his earthly ministry. She She may not have known all of the the depth of his miracles. She hadn't probably heard the preaching of the kingdom of God before. But she knew enough. She knew that she was desperate and that Jesus, from what he had heard, was able to bring her hope amid her desperation. See, it's not what you know about Jesus. It's what you do with that knowledge that you have of him. It's how you appropriate appropriate what you know of him it's how you then come to jesus right how much do you know about jesus and kids that's a question for you too how much do you know about jesus it's a good question right well we can say we know you know i'm probably from the things that you've heard in sunday school in here we know that he's the son of god right you know that he's human 
You know that he died. You know that he rose again. You know that he forgives your sins because of his cross. You know that he's a king who loves you. You know that he's always with you. Maybe if your, your teacher gave you an assignment at school, I want you to write all that you know about Jesus. How many pages do you think that you could write? Did you know that people have studied and thought about Jesus for thousands of years, for a really long time, that they've written books filled with thousands of pages about Jesus, and they still haven't written everything beautiful and wonderful about him? But see, it doesn't matter how many pages that you can write about Jesus. It doesn't matter about how you can come before him. Even if you just know a little bit about Jesus, even if you can just write one page, even if you can write a paragraph about what you know about Jesus, you can still come to him. And that's not an excuse for us to not study and learn as much about him as we can. We ought to. We ought to know and want to to know our Savior deeper and in new ways. And in ways that aren't, don't just touch the head, but that sink down into our hearts also. But knowing your need and desperation is what he asks for you to come, regardless of how much or how little that you know of him. Uh, the renowned 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth uh, was once speaking on the campus of the University of Chicago. And a student there asked him if he could summarize his theology in one sentence. And his reported answer was, In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, the core about what we know about Jesus and about why we come to him with our desperate needs, that is vast, it is deep, it's complicated, or it's it's, it's vast, it's deep, but it's not complicated. At its heart there, it's really not that complicated. We know who we are. We know who Jesus is, and we come to him in our desperation. It's that Jesus lovingly came to save us in our sin and misery. And that's all you need to know to come to him. You can leave your dissertation at home. But this woman here, this desperate mom, whose little daughter was plagued by a demon, she may not have known much, but she knew enough. She knew who Jesus was. Enough to fall down at at, at his feet, bring her fears, her needs, her requests before him. And we know who Jesus is too. We've been reading through Mark. We know of his compassion. We know of his caring for the least of these. We know about his caring for the needy and how he listens to the desperate and lifts them up. Because we know that, the answer that he gives her is all the more surprising then. Because second, we see Jesus' unexpected answer. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In so many words, no. A surprising, unexpected answer that Jesus gives here. This woman is clearly in need. Whose heart here hasn't been broken at the thought of this little girl tragically possessed and and tormented by a demonic spirit? Who here hasn't felt this sorrow and empathetic pain along with the mom? And if we were there, we could do anything to help, we would have. And yet Jesus gives her a negative answer. And it's so much more surprising because this doesn't sound like the Jesus who we've read about before. We've read about a caring and a compassionate Jesus, not a dismissive one. 
But on top of all this, is there even an insult and offensiveness to his answer? Is he calling her a dog? It's a common Jewish term for Gentiles, one usually spoken in derision or muttered under the breath. Oh, the dogs. That's not very kind. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Since when does he insult a desperate person coming to him? See, what Jesus is doing there, he's getting at something. And he's doing so in a cryptic fashion. He's not speaking of her in a derogatory manner, but rather what he's doing is he's building an analogy with a common dinner scene. All to make a point. Who gets fed first at the dinner table? It's the children. You put the dinner on the table, let the kids eat, and then any scraps that you have or any leftovers, you throw out to the dogs, right? In this context here, you toss the scraps out with, to the dogs. And the key word, though, that Jesus gives here is that let the children be fed first. See, there's a, manner, a matter of order, of plan. And Jesus came to bring the good news of life to a weary world. But he first came to the Jewish people, the people who God had made a covenant with and had been a visible relationship with for, for generations. And he came to them who were given the promises, who were given the law, everything pointing them to, uh, pointing them to what God was doing among them and what he was going to do among them. <clears throat> That's why Jesus' ministry was primarily within the Jewish territories and why he tried to remain hidden here in Tyre and Sidon. And yet, what's the key word here? It says, let the children be fed first. And that's really good news if you're not Jewish. Right? Because it means that the gospel of Jesus isn't exclusive only to the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles, for the whole world. See, cultural exclu exclusivity doesn't fit the biblical storyline. Even in the Old Testament, there were numerous stories of individuals outside of the Jewish people who were saved and brought into the covenant community by faith. You had Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho. Ruth, a Moabite widow who became even a great-grandmother of King David and then put into the lineage of Jesus himself. The servant songs of Isaiah, speaking of the coming Redeemer of Israel, refer to his salvation being unable to be contained within ethnic or geographic bounds and the glory of God bursting out forth to the ends of the earth. It's always been a part of God's redemption as being, being uh, to, to the nations of the world. And that little phrase here that we have in verse 27, first, should give all of us Gentiles here reasons for joy. That's not why Jesus was there, though. He clearly wasn't there for a Gentile mission at this point because he's trying to remain inconspicuous. The time was coming, the time would soon come, but it wasn't there yet. And that's what Jesus was telling this woman. It's not time yet. I'm working and ministering among my Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm still in phase one of this multi-phase worldwide redemption plan. And just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm working. I'm off the clock right now. And that might soften his words a little bit, but isn't it so still unexpected? It doesn't sound like the Jesus whom we've come to know, the Jesus who we've read about. It still sounds kind of harsh, right? Maybe not a harshness to the words themselves, but with what sounds like an uncaring attitude that he has. But see, we can't just read this statement on its own. We need to read the whole story. We need to look at the whole interaction of what's going here. Because we, we begin to see that Jesus is up to something. He's provoking a response from this woman. 
His unexpected no is giving her room to think about her faith. Is what she's heard of him really true? Not just his ability, but his willingness. He's giving her room. He's giving her an opportunity to really consider him and to give her a new avenue for expressing her faith and in new or deeper ways than before. I take my kids to the playground at the park. And sometimes they climb up high, a little higher than they end up being comfortable with, and they want me to get them down. And they ex usually ex typically expect me to just pick them up and carry them down. But sometimes I don't. Sometimes I tell them no. And it's not because I'm cruel and I just want to leave them up there, although there is a little bit of delight sometimes, admittedly. <laughs> but it's because I want them to jump instead. Sometimes with my help and sometimes not, depending on the height, depending on the child. But my no, though, is, is intended for them to grow so that they would extend themselves in new ways. My no isn't because I don't care about them. It's actually testing them and tempering them to learn and to maybe even really jump out in faith and land in my arms. And Jesus is giving her room here. He's giving her an opportunity to press in faith. He's saying, who am I? Is it true the, what you've heard about me and why you've come here? And when Jesus says no in a certain moment, he says, it's not because I don't care. God's knows, even his silence, doesn't mean that he doesn't care or that he's unloving. The core of our faith is believing who God says he is. And when he says no, then what? aren't you who you say you are? Aren't you the covenant God? And Jesus' answer gave her the room to press in and to evaluate who he is. And it gave her the opportunity then to press in. And that's third then, we see the woman's relentless faith. This woman's faith is relentless. She pushes into Jesus. She presses into him with this relentlessness, even using his response and analogy and pushing the implications of his, of his answer, but with all still due respect at the same time. She says in verse 28 then, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The dogs still get fed under the table. They suck up the crumbs that the children inev inevitably drop. The bread doesn't need to be taken from the kids to feed the dogs. See, to her, this wasn't a matter of asking Jesus uh, for diversion from his primary ministry or his mission, but to, to, to Jews. She wasn't asking for anything special or for, for him to get ahead of himself. But as he was out feeding the children, the dogs beneath the table, people desperate just like her also get fed from the crumbs that fall from the table. She wasn't asking for any sort of preferential treatment here or for him to end the mealtime and start feeding the dogs. But as the dogs lick up all the crumbs that are dropped from the table, couldn't she do the same? The dogs still eat before mealtime is over. And even just receiving a little crumb that drops from, from Jesus' goodness and his mission of what he was doing for them, that's enough. Who is she questioning Jesus? Well, she's just like so many of us as we pray and as we grapple with God, trying to come to grips with his perceived answers in a moment. And her faith and her reply presses into Jesus and questions him. But it doesn't try to coerce him. 
It does, he doesn't try to entrap him. Aha, see, I've got you now. See, that's not faith. She doesn't come with a sense of entitlement. All the while, she is respectful. She's humble before him. And anything she might receive is not because of, out of what's due. She knows who she's talking to. And when Jesus responds positively to her, it's not because he feels like he's been caught in his words or he's been twisted, had, had his arm twisted in some way. She uses his own words. And I think that there's an element where he intended her to. He wasn't acting cold. He was giving her the space to evaluate him and to press in as she saw fit. And she takes his words and pushes the analogy. I'm not disputing who I am. I don't come with privilege. I am coming like a dog beneath the table. And still the dogs beneath the table get little tastes during mealtime. Jesus, I'm not asking for you to divert your mission for me. Keep doing what you're doing. But as you are working amongst your brothers and sisters, if that analogy that you've given me is true, then shouldn't I also get a little taste of what you have been giving them? I'll just simply pick up the crumbs. It's a bold move. But she takes what Jesus had told her, and that's part of what relentless faith does. It uses God's word. It doesn't presume. It doesn't come to God with its own ideas or assumptions. It comes to him saying, this is what your word says about you. This is what you've said about yourself. In a way that looks to him with desperation, with longing, and ultimately with a sense of trust. That no matter what may be happening, I'm trying to reconcile who you are in this moment with, what you, with who you said that you are. And using God's word isn't twisting his arm. It's not trying to coerce him. But it looks rather to the integrity of both God and his word. Aren't you, say, aren't you the one who you say that you are? Yes, God, I believe so. And will you please do your work? Will you please continue to be faithful to who you said you are and to what you've promised? And this sort of faith requires wrestling. It doesn't take a passive approach with God, but it really seeks to know him. Oh, okay, I, I guess I know how things are. No. It pleads. It seeks. It isn't resigned. It stays up all night. It wrestles with him and appeals to him and tries to figure him out. It tries to make sense of him in light of his word. It wrestles with God as it wrestles with his word. And that's part of what makes this sort of faith not disrespectful. It actually holds his word at the center. It upholds the integrity of both God and his word, and it makes its appeal to him on the basis of that. This isn't coming to God and asking him what we think that he should be doing because we've imagined him as being like this. It's what he's told us. I mean, if you want an example of this, look no further than the Psalms. Yes, the Psalms are, are, are a book of hymns and praises. Yes, there are thanksgivings in there, but it's also a book that is laden with the prayers of the Old Testament saints and even divinely inspired prayers from the Old Testament saints who were doing this exact same thing. Lord, I cry out to you. Lord, I am desperate. I'm in grief. How long, O oh Lord? I know who you are. I know who you said that you are. So please arise and defend my cause. Save me. God, on the basis of what you've told me, are you going to take action? And even it takes place in certain occasions and it becomes very dark. And like all wrestling, it's painful. No one likes to hear those words of no, especially when they're from someone who we love 
someone who says that they love us. And even more so when, they're, when we're in a desperate situation. I've had some of my own times of having to wrestle and reckon with God's promises, with who, who he says he is, even amongst my own desperation. Seasons of life where I've been overwhelmed with my mental health, with crippling anxiety, with bouts of depressiveness, and how they settled over me like a dark cloud that would just not go away and overwhelmed me in life and in ministry. But what that did was it drove me to God over and over. God, you have made covenant promises to me. So why am I going through this? You've said you've made covenant promises for my good. What, is, what are you doing? Please help me. God, I am desperate. Please save me from this crippling anxiety. And as I've been, as I've been able to get some, to know you all here more, I know that some of you have gone through some very, very painful times and seasons of, and wrestling with God. Some extremely difficult situations, trying times, and even some of you are going through some right now. But here's the thing, and what many of you have held on to and remembered as you've wrestled with God over and over in prayer, we don't have to coerce him. We don't have to coerce God. We don't have to twist God's arm, if that were even possible. But our prayers and our pleadings aren't a means of entrapping him in his word and telling him, I gotcha, because he's trustworthy, because he's a God of covenant faithfulness, and he does care. And even when he gives us answers that seem surprising or unexpected in the moment. And we can continue to plead and ask in faith because of this beautiful truth. That God the Father gave his son to death for you. That Jesus gave himself on the cross for you. That the spirit of God resides within you. From Romans 8, if God didn't spare his own son for us, then how will he not also with him give us all things? See, who is God? He's a God of covenant faithfulness. Who gave his very son out of covenant love, a steadfast, everlasting faithfulness to the covenant promises that he has given to us to be our faithful God and to make us into his faithful people. See, we know the whole story. Unlike this woman, we know how Jesus went to the cross. She pressed in faith with an incomplete view of Jesus' person and mission. But we press in in faith. As we do so, we need to remember the whole storyline of God. Our views of him need to be refracted through the cross. And we say that sometimes. We say sometimes that we need to look at God through the lens of the cross. But what does that really mean? It's like 3D glasses. Over the last decade or so, 3D movies have made a comeback. Maybe you've gone to one before. You put the glasses on, and then this movie had this crazy perspective where it looks like it's jumping out at you. But have you ever taken the, your glasses off at a 3D movie and seen what's up there? It's hard. It's dizzying because like, there's two images that don't quite line up with each other there, and it's like almost nauseating. It's everything's going on there. Right? The lines run over each other, everything's blurred, the whole movie screen and the image hurts your eyes. But you put the glasses on and the lines come together and they make an image that has depth and it jumps out at you. And when we look at God without the cross, he might appear blurry. He might even appear unintelligible. But through the cross, though, the lines come together and we see him with depth. 
And, not only, and, and only through the cross does he really come alive. And that promise there is essential for our faith. We may wrestle with God in our confusion, but a relentless faith does so bearing in mind the cross. Which is why the Lord's table, which we're going to come to, is a means of increasing our faith by focusing upon the promises of God and his fulfillment of them. Who is God? He's a covenant God who gave his son, who spilled his blood to seal those covenant promises for us, for his people, so we can continue to trust in him. We can plead with him and not remain in discouragement or fear when his answer to us might seem surprising or unexpected at that moment. We can press in with faith because Christ has died, Christ has risen. Friends, Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord God, all of us, all of us are desperate people in our own ways, in different ways, but yet all of us still have that same desperation and need of of needing to come before you because we are helpless people. Help us not see that desperation is something to, to put aside or a sign of weakness. Desperation is what drives us to you. And so lead us then to press on in faith. Build our faith, grow our faith. And even as we come to the table here, use these elements to bolster us to see that even in the times where we receive an unexpected answer from you, you are still faithful. And that we can continue to press in faith because Jesus Christ is our covenant keeper. Jesus Christ is the one whose blood of the covenant seals us in you. In Jesus' name, amen.